Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. I am delighted to have Dr. Chetan Sathya join me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Dr. Sathya is a pediatric trauma surgeon and an NIH-funded firearm injury prevention researcher. He's currently serving as the director of Northwell Health's Center for Gun Violence Prevention. And he comes on today to talk about the scourge of gun violence and its effect on American children. This is not an easy one to listen to, to be totally honest with you. It's not an easy conversation to have, and that's exactly why we did it. This is a critically important topic. It's one that we have to all wade into, step into the tension around, because it is not easy. It's really, really important. Gun violence is the leading cause of death for children in America, and Dr. Sathy is one of those leaders who is working really hard to help make it better. And there's a wide-ranging conversation. We cover a variety of topics underneath this larger issue. And I think that you will find it is a, a useful tool as we continue to drive towards progress. Speaking of progress, I do want to also just take a moment to shout out a really powerful project that is happening right now, the Healthcare Workers versus Hunger Fundraiser. If you are on Twitter, you have no doubt seen hashtag HCWVSHunger, and that is the hashtag that is being used by this unbelievably exciting fundraiser project raising money for food banks and food kitchens all around the United States. You can check out the website at www.hcwvshunger.org. As of this recording this morning, this is the date that the episode is being published, December 1st, $439,487 have been raised. That's in about three days' time. And over the course of the time that this project has been up and running since 2020, over $1.2 million has been raised. Now, you can go on the website, check it out. You can make any contribution you want. You can decide which team you want to be a part of. And let's be very clear. You do not have to be a healthcare worker to participate. If you are, that's great. If you're not and you want to be a part of something really special, please do wade in. Big shout out to our friends, Dr. Angela Wayand and Dr. Tatiana Prowell. They were on Explore the Space podcast last year to talk about this fundraiser. And they are just amazing. At AC Wayand and at TM Prowell on Twitter. Follow them for sure and follow the hashtag. HCWVS Hunger. It's amazing. It runs for a couple more days. It runs through December 4th of 2022. And if you need help finding your local food bank, you can go to Feeding America and there's a link on the Healthcare Workers versus Hunger website. Very, very special. Please participate. Please get on social media and share it and share it with your friends and your colleagues. And let's see if we can get over $500,000 raised today. You can check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and you can email me anytime, Mark at Explore the Space Show.com. All right, let's get to our conversation with Dr. Chathan Sathya. Chathan, welcome to Explore the Space Podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I appreciate you being here for a variety of reasons, and I want to start with the broad strokes. I never like to assume people understand nuance, subtlety, and have a full appreciation of specifically what you do. You're a pediatric trauma surgeon. And I think the place for you and I to start this conversation, what is it like and what is the scope of work, the scope of practice like 
as a pediatric trauma surgeon in a major American city. I feel like that's the right place to start so that we have shared understanding. I couldn't agree more, Mark. I mean, I think first of, first and foremost, it's, it's, it's a tough time to be a pediatric specialist of any kind who's taking care of injured children. Uh, you know, we are seeing spiking rates of violent injury in this country, violent death. And it's not only emotionally draining, it is, uh, uh, you know, professionally draining as well. Um, the journey for a pediatric surgeon, you know, I, I did my typical adult general surgery board certification and training uh, for five years. And then you do an additional fellowship in pediatric surgery for two years. So I am a pediatric surgeon. I do treat kids, babies, adolescents across the spectrum, tumors, congenital defects, and so on. But a big part of my practice as the associate trauma director at our level one trauma center is to really focus on the care of injured kids. So, you know, not only do we focus on quality improvement and guidelines for those who are injured, uh, you know, we do really assist in a bulk of the, the, the care that is required by those who are injured. And in this case, particularly uh, kids who are shot by guns. What is that sort of wraparound care when you're in the, you know, the trauma resuscitation bay or in the OR or all of that sort of thing when a child comes in who's been shot? And I want to just fully acknowledge this is not going to be easy for anyone to listen to. And I know it's not easy for you to talk about or I'm sure easy to do the work. But part of dealing with the fact that the leading cause of death for children in the United States right now is gun violence and being shot by a firearm. We need to be really explicit and transparent about what is actually happening so people can understand that this isn't this isn't ethereal. This isn't vague. This doesn't just go away. Um, and it's not like what you see on TV. What is the rhythm? What is the kind of your movements when a child comes into the recess bay and you're the trauma attending on call and you have to try to save this child that's just been shot? To be honest, it's in many ways horrifying. Um, you know, my, I'll, I'll tell a story. One of my first purviews into pediatric gun violence was during training in Chicago. Um, and I often tell the story, you know, my first week on the job, I, I saw a six month old little girl with a bullet wound through and through her pelvis and abdomen. And I remember being in the, in the trauma bay with this little baby. I had both my fingers on the gun wounds. Blood was gushing out. Uh, I saw this little baby, you know, not crying, um, just had her eyes kind of rolling back to the back of her head. And in pediatric trauma, the parents come into the trauma bay with you, um, different than adult trauma. So you can imagine the horrific experience on these parents' face, faces. And, uh, you know, I couldn't help but think about my own children. And, you know, that was the first experience I had with this. Uh, it's happened, you know, week in, week out, particularly in Chicago and continues to happen here in New York, where we've seen, uh, for example, 27 kids with bullet wounds at our, at our children's hospital this year already. And we saw seven last year. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a drastic increase. Um, I could go on with these stories, but they are very, you know, horrific, uh, emotional. Uh, this is a preventable disease. And to see these kids go through this. It's devastating. And that first story I told you, it's an important one because we did save that baby's life, but that child is just, is actually uh, paralyzed to this date, uh, really speaking to the, the devastating disability that can result from these injuries. And acknowledging that in those, you know, extraordinarily challenging moments when you're resuscitating a child that's been shot and the parents are there, what is that skill set like? What are those interactions like? How do you support them? in the like moments of peril, but then the sort of wraparound services going forward, acknowledging the, I, I, I can't even fathom the devastation, the fear, the anxiety. H how does the care team seek to serve them as you're trying to also do your job? It's tough. You, you know, it, it, it is probably one of the toughest situations, I think, to, you know, focus on the patient, but still 
understand what these parents are going through, right? It is very hard to separate the two when they're in the same room and you're thinking about this child in front of you, you're thinking about your own kids, you're thinking about this family and what they're going through. So, you know, as part of the trauma response, of course, child life specialists, spiritual care folks, support workers are in the trauma bay with us, attending to the parents as we are dealing with the life and death situation of that child. But then to your point, right after we stabilize the child, you know, the interaction with the parents is tough because day in and day out, you need to continue to tell these parents that they have an injured child or they've lost a child to gun violence, which is really a preventable disease. And we are not trained in medical school um, to know what wraparound services to offer these parents. You know, uh, what beyond being empathetic, you know, what else do you offer? Because in many cases, these families sometimes, particularly when you're talking about firearm related homicide, they have other kids who they're concerned about. You know, they are worried about further gun violence. They've already lost family to gun violence. And, and so this is an area that we're just not well trained to deal with. As you deal with this, you know, when you're on call and day after day and month after month, how does the team that does that work, you as a trauma attending and the, the you know, the critical care nursing staff that's with you and, and the whole team that comes into that resuscitation suite, how do you all take care of each other? Because I, I cannot begin to imagine the impact that this has on all of you as well. And we need you, right? We need a lot of you. And we need you to be able to do this work that obviously you're well-trained and you're passionate about. How do you all look out for each other and also look out for yourselves? I would say that we don't do a good job of it. Um, but, you know, we're, we are trying to get better. Um, these are, to your point, extremely emotionally draining. Uh, first of all, whenever you lose a kid. Uh, to any type of injury uh, or any issue here, it's draining. And particularly when it comes to a gun injury, you know, these are very traumatic situations. Um, you know, this is an acute scenario with a bullet wound. And for many who are in the trauma bay, this might've been the first time they're actually seeing, for example, a bullet wound in a kid, you know? And so uh, we have debriefs as part of the trauma, the, as part of like the, the, the trauma quality improvement review and so on. We all debrief, we talk about it, but I don't think we do enough. And I think this really speaks to the fact that employees at hospitals, whether you're a clinical team member or not, are increasingly being exposed to gun violence, uh, whether it be in their community or within the hospital setting. And we don't have a well thought out plan of how to support those employees. You know, this can result in significant PTSD, anxiety, depression, burnout. Um, we don't have a great plan. You know, it's easy for me to say that in many ways, we're also privileged because we get to, you know, we treat these patients right? We're not the ones who are necessarily losing a child in that moment. However, this, of course, does take a huge, huge uh, toll uh, on healthcare workers. And I think we need to do better. So certainly at Northwell, we're trying to figure out a better response to this and how we can support our employees through this uh, from a wellness lens. Yeah, I, I just that that level of awareness of the scope of the problem, I, I guess, in some ways, I'm, I guess, gratified to hear you say that it's still very difficult. And there's a lot of work to be done because I do feel like this is a place where it's really easy to gaslight and say that there's so much available and everyone's gotten so good at it and these sorts of things. And it just doesn't feel like that's true. And the caregivers being able to feel cared for and be able to care for themselves is instrumental because as you said, right, this is a preventable disease, but it's certainly not one where the preventative tools are widely implemented and widely embraced yet. And that's a huge challenge going forward. That all being said, there's 
opportunities to get better. And there's, I would say, probably more drive to do this work better and differently. Before you started your training and then when you were in training to now, have you seen the level of engagement, the level of tangible investment and the level of awareness around gun violence, particularly in the pediatric population change? Or do you feel like it's been about the same? No, I've definitely seen a big change. Remember, it wasn't that long ago prior to 2019 that this was not even a legitimate, you know, this was not even a legitimate issue to actually research when it comes to federal funding. And I think, you know, not only have I seen a change in the research world and the number of academics who are or academic associations that are considering this a legitimate research issue rather than a political one. But no, certainly I'm seeing institutions take more of a role here, uh, more public awareness that this is a public health issue, not a political one. You know, we've seen a huge change. Having said that, Mark, though, one thing that did surprise me in 2019 when our CEO, Michael Dowling, took a big stance on this topic was that he was one of the first health system CEOs to take a big stance on this. And since that time... He sure was. He sure was. Yeah. And since that time, not many others uh, were willing to join at first. They sure haven't. Yeah. You know, there, I, I, was, I was surprised uh, because we often focus on corporate America and how they're not doing enough. But I was very surprised that corporate healthcare, you know, did not view this as an important issue. And there was a, a lot of concern around, you know, boards political fallout and all this stuff, even when we're approaching this purely as a firearm safety, violence prevention type of issue. I think I've seen momentum shift, particularly in the last six months to a year, a lot more health systems, hospitals coming on board. But you mentioned it right at the at the at the start. How many hospitals have a center for gun violence, right, or a pillar or an institute or some sort of organizational commitment to it versus how many hospitals have commitments to cancer and heart disease? You know, if you look at it from that lens, it's pretty shocking, uh, particularly since guns are the leading cause of death in kids. That's a really powerful juxtaposition to make for sure. Hearing you describe that change in kind of tempo and attitude in, in the year 2019, it's it's fascinating to hear you say that there's, uh, you, know, you know, you and I have you know, been texting and sending direct messages back and forth. And I have a grand rounds that I that I give on, mm-hmm. you know, things I didn't learn in training about firearms. And a focal point of that is around the Dickey Amendment and the impact of the Dickey Amendment from 1996 all the way up until what you said, you know, around 2018, 2019, when the Dickey Amendment was reinterpreted, there was no research allowed. You have recently been awarded an NIH grant to study gun violence and gun violence prevention. That was not done for 30 plus years. And you, you're really going to be a really interesting test case to see that. W- was it gratifying? Was it satisfying to know that not only was your NIH award important and an accelerant for change around gun violence, but also one of the first of its kind in almost two generations? Absolutely. You know, I, I think the power of having federal funds for this kind of issue goes far beyond just supporting the research. It fundamentally changes the way that academic institutions and universities view this topic. We keep talking about how gun violence prevention or just gun violence epidemiology in general, firearm injury prevention epidemiology is not a mainstay in curriculums. How are we generating the next kind of pipeline of young firearm injury prevention researchers? None of that can happen without legitimate funds like this, very much geared towards academia and research. So I think it was transformational. It's not a lot of funding. A lot more is needed in keeping with the burden of disease that firearms cause. However, it's a great step in the right direction and has, um, yeah, been a game changer in many ways. 
it's ironic that the amount that you were awarded is almost the same amount that was initially diverted when the Dickey Amendment passed in 1996. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really, really close. <laughs> I did not know it's, that. Uh, there's, yeah, the, the history continues to repeat itself. You did mention Northwell, where you work. Uh, you're the director of Northwell Health Center for Gun Violence Prevention. And, you know, I was reading about you a little bit over the last few months. And, you know, when you and I finally figured out our schedule so you could come on the show, there's a word that's used to describe your health system's approach to firearm injury prevention on the website. And it's actually in your profile. And that word is expansive. I would be surprised if there were more than double digit health centers that would share that same enthusiastic modifier around their approach to firearm injury prevention. What does it feel like to be not just part of an organization, but the, the director of a center where the approach is felt to be expansive? It's a great question, Mark. I think it is inspirational for frontline workers like us, you know, like you, me, uh, researchers, people who are on the front lines dealing with patients, dealing with folks who are suffering from these injuries. It is inspirational to have leadership back you to this point. You know, the, the expansive word comes really from scaling across the system. You know, how do we scale interventions that we know can prevent fire injury across the system? How do we scale institutional culture change? Because at the end of the day, this is actually a culture change mission. You know, there are many within healthcare organizations who do not believe that this is necessarily the right thing to tackle, uh, that it's not necessarily worthy of so much attention. But a, a lot of that is changed with the conversation and sustaining dialogue. You, would, you wouldn't believe how many of our employees share, share stories after education about how they have been affected by gun violence, you know, how they change their perceptions about things. So it is not only inspirational, but honestly, after the number and spike of mass shootings that we're seeing across the country and the spiking gun violence in many communities, it is also extremely rewarding to know that we work at a system that has prioritized this because all the employees and patients who kind of come through this system respect that. You know, uh, people want to be able to do something. Uh, people are, are, are scared about sending their kids to school. You know, people are worried about gun violence in their communities. And for them to know that their system is taking such a leading role on this has been very inspirational for others as well. Do you get a lot of shoulder taps? Hey, what are you doing? What's working? What uh, what is the, the low hanging fruit for, you know, an organization for a single individual surgeon? Do you get those questions or has that not started yet? Yes, absolutely. That's a super common question, because one of our biggest pushes has been not only to collectively create a network across hospitals and health systems to bring everyone to the table to con to consider also prioritizing this issue, but to also really figure out a roadmap for hospitals and health systems, how to engage, you know, from leadership down. Uh, there are provider level interventions that, you know, you can start small with, whether that be counseling, screening for risk, violence intervention, uh, gun locks, you know, all the way to institutional things like scaling programs uh, that support community violence intervention or scaling programs that support firearm safety. Um, these are all potentials. And we've been trying to map out this toolkit along with another, uh, along with a, a number of other hospitals. That is certainly a very common question, because I think one of the biggest things is people don't know where to start. Yeah. So then for you, right, you are as well equipped as one could be to drive change. You are extraordinarily well trained and you're a busy practicing doc, right? You've got a trauma background and you do the work. You've got organizational support, right? You're the director of an expansive program. 
and you've got money. You've got $1.4 million of NIH funding. Where do you want to start? What are the, the top of mind things for you late 2022, going into 2023 and beyond? What's top of mind for you? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's really worth mentioning, first of all, that we have a lot of learning to do ourselves. You know, we are, have only been in this space for a few years. So part of the network that we've yeah. is really actually to offer us support too. And, you know, what yeah. should we build out? How do we support our community partners? And, you know, uh, many, many hospitals and providers across the country have done amazing work in this area, as you know, uh, whether you're talking about Hopkins, Michigan, Mass General, you know, very important work in different areas. And so we have been learning a lot from those uh, programs as to what we might want to do. The additional thing about funding is, you know, the NIH grant, just to clarify, is for a research implementation study. We have multiple other state grants, but the system itself, Northwell, has invested a lot of corporate funds into our center. You know, and, and I bring that up because when we talk about institutional support, endowments, sustainability, I think that is important, particularly in an issue like this that might need some startup funds or might need some time to evolve. I think that type of institutional support is uh, is very important and, and it has been very instrumental to our success in allowing us to hire folks and grow our team. Going forward, I think, you know, we have really a huge coalition of hospitals and health systems across the country um, who have now come together and pledged to, to actually implement strategies to reduce gun violence, whether it be the learning collaborative that we collectively host. Um, Michael Dowling, our CEO, is putting together a new CEO council as well that has the CEOs from the largest health systems across the country who are joining, who are going to make substantial institutional commitments, hopefully around this topic, you know, I think the next phase, next two to three years is figuring out how do we leverage that? How do we build better data infrastructure, uh, data sharing agreements between hospitals to really get a grasp of what's happening with non-fatal fire injuries in this country? How do we collectively work together to create better standards, whether you're talking about firearm-related homicide, suicide, or intentional injury prevention? Each require a different set of skills, a different set of strategies. How do we come together and figure that out? That's going to be the next phase. When you talk with other surgeons and other you know hospitalists and intensive care doctors and respiratory therapists and and ed nurses who do work around firearm injury and to take care of those who've been shot do you feel like those who are doing this work along with you and you yourself does this feel like career work or does it feel like look i can only do this for so long and then we're gonna have to take a break and do something different because it's too hefty is there dialogue amongst you and your peers in that space yeah you know i think this is a hard issue because it requires time patience and requires uh, a lot of emotion to your point you know some folks sometimes say the harder you work on this issue the more gun violence is going up and um, if you look at recent stats, you know, numbers have been getting worse, particularly with respect to firearm homicides in this country. And so I think, um, you know, it's really important that when, at least for us, when we're sustaining dialogue on this topic, that we continue to have close connections and collaborations with community-based organizations and survivors, because hospitals are only a piece of the solution here. And it is through the inspiration of these survivors and community groups that, that, that really continues to propel us forward. So no, there hasn't been a discussion about taking a pause. I mean, I think it, it is going to take many years and we, ha we have to keep going at it. But your point about being, dis you know, not your exact words, but it, it is easy to be disheartened at times. But we use those moments with our community partners and so on to, to really understand that we are coming at this 
from a, in many ways a, a a privileged lane and that we that we need to continue fighting what are the in addition to the myriad skills that we've already discussed are there skills that you've had to add to your repertoire that are now like fundamental skills that you maybe didn't learn in medical school or residency that are you know fundamental for you and fundamental for anyone who does this what would those what are those things that you didn't think you'd have to know or learn that you had to add and use on a regular basis? And that's a totally loaded question because there's something specific that I'm getting to. Got it. Got it. Well, I would say one of the, <laughs> big, one of the biggest skills I think um, is honestly storytelling. Um, that's why I appreciate yeah. the work that you do um, on your podcast, uh, because I think storytelling is a critical component. Now that is not an area that I thought I, well, l- let's say during medical school, I thought that I would never need to know that. During my residency, I did do a journalism program and I actually used to be a reporter and I've always understood the value personally of storytelling. And I think that that has been a, um, you know, something I've I've tried to leverage. And I think, for example, the work that you do in really having these intimate conversations and and talking about these issues in a sustained way is absolutely critical because in academia, we all, you know, we often don't focus on the knowledge translation, public awareness piece. And with gun violence specifically, you know, we focus on mass shootings, right? But mass shootings make less than 1% of all gun violence in this country. Unless we sustain the dialogue and continue to tell these stories of gun violence that are happening every day in the story, sorry, that are happening every day in this country, we are not going to be able to, you know, continue to make change in this area. So I would say storytelling is a big component, Mark. And then, and then you know, the, the advocacy piece, um, social media and so on, those are all things that I've, I've just learned a little bit over time. I definitely don't do as well as you, but um, I, I think those are elements, again, in the line of what we call thought leadership. How do you get yourself out there to become a thought leader, to, to, to engage in the conversation about this? Um, those are probably critical skills. And then, sorry, the third and last thing is, of course, public health. Um, I did do a little bit of public health training, but I, I never necessarily envisioned that I would be doing so much in the public health space. You nailed it. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I was I was going for. You know, it's it's again, it's this idea of understanding the importance of of relatable storytelling so that you can reach a broad audience where they are. You know, I know your background. You have a journalism training, and you worked as a journalist. Um, again, that idea of having media training, uh, being comfortable, you know, either behind the mic or in front of the camera, whatever the case may be, right? For physicians and healthcare professionals, it's a fundamental skill at this point. And just sort of hearing you articulate all of those things and the impact that they've had uh, is is really important and it's really compelling. You did also mention something that I think is worth picking up on. And it's this idea that as we deal with gun violence in the United States, the mass shootings are horrifying and tragic, but it's the unrelenting tempo. It's not that we're, it's, it's that it's, the, it's happening every day. And there's a quote from uh, a friend of ours from Twitter, and I got his permission to to read it to you. And I, I don't know if you saw it. It was just yesterday. But uh, Dr. Syed Tabatabai at The Real Dr. T, obviously a great friend of Explore the Space and my buddy from Med Lasso, he wrote about this. It's all basically one extended shooting. The passage of time and living in the United States of amnesia kind of obscures it somewhat, but it really is just one constant continual tragedy unfolding and reflecting onto itself like some kind of kaleidoscope from hell. And that put me on my knees. I mean, so I had such a gifted writer. But when I read that, I, I knew I was speaking with you today. If you want to reflect on that, that's fine. But how, how, how do you see us in, at some point over the course of your and my careers and our lives, how do we break this kaleidoscope from hell? How, how does this come? What is the end game for this? 
Those are powerful words, Mark. And I was actually just looking up yeah. the um, kind of the tweet right now as you were saying it. You know, I, 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 I have some thoughts. I guess I would say, first of all, I, I, was, I, I did want to ask you too, you know, how did you develop the storytelling skills required for this just on our prior point? And number two, yeah. What are your thoughts on how we can break that kaleidoscope? And then I'll, I'll sure, definitely. Sure. No, you know, for me, the, the, the storytelling, I've always loved the art of storytelling. I've always loved sort of the oral tradition since I was a kid, you know, I always loved, you know, audiobooks and being able to tell stories. I've always enjoyed public speaking. And thankfully I've had some great coaches and some great mentors who've taught me a lot of skills along the way. And then really, and I've shared this before on the show, it's, it's about getting reps. You know, people will say I'm scared of public speaking. And what I always really encourage them to do is drill down on that a lot. Public speaking is a big, big swimming pool. What part of the swimming pool actually gives you anxiety? And then that's a coachable, teachable skill. Let's let's hone that because it's not the totality of it. There's something about it or maybe more than one thing about it that we can really hone in on and coach and mentor and get better at so that then things that you are comfortable with, they're all in lockstep. And that for me is super compelling because I think to the next part of this, part of this is a legion of healthcare professionals that are comfortable speaking about gun violence and all of the other public health emergencies that we face as a society. This is generational work. This is legacy work. We all have to participate. It has to become part of our training. It has to become part of our everyday normalized dialogue. And especially around gun violence, right? The Dickey Amendment was just catastrophic in the effect that it had on our ability to talk about gun violence. Even Congressman Dickey himself in, 20, in 2012, after the Aurora shooting, wrote that editorial in the Washington Post decrying his own amendment and how devastating it's been to narrative, to research, to all of those things. I think that the, the, the low hanging fruit right now, obviously, is a mixture of things. I think there's political levers to be pulled. I think, obviously, the passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was important. Yeah. House Resolution yeah. 8, the Universal Background Checks Bill that passed the House that needs to come to a vote in the Senate and hopefully be signed into law. These are all things that have greater than 80 percent approval uh, in the United States in polling. And then I think there needs to be input impetus from private industry. I think that we need to see insurers be allowed to add firearms and firearm training and secure storage storage into their actuarial tables for all different types of insurance, because that's how you touch a population. That's how you really impact, right? Half of Americans live in a home with a firearm. Well, that needs to be part of something that's required of all of those homes, which is some form of insurance. Uh, and having that be allowed to be part of those actuarial tables, I think would be a tremendous driver of behavior, as we've seen in a variety of other industries. And then obviously a review and overhaul of gun manufacturer liability. I will not profess to be an expert into all of those things, and I'm not an attorney, but I know that there are some significant protections afforded to manufacturers of firearms in the United States around liability, and those need to be reevaluated, um, and they need to be brought to the same level as any other heavy industry, any other major industry uh, that has the ability to cause injury or death. Um, and that sort of normalization, again, th this is not, these are not things that will infringe on the Second Amendment. These are not things that change the, that change the, the, the texture of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, but there are things that need to be brought to the same standard as, as any other component of American life in this thing that is, as we've said, the leading cause of death uh, in America. Th that's sort of my take on it. I think those are the things that can happen the fastest. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking about what Syed wrote since he wrote it. I texted him right away. I was like, oh my gosh, man. Um, and so that's kind of where I sit with it. And then conversations like this, right? You are, a, you are an expert and you, your voice needs to ring out and those that you work with and train and collaborate with, they need to ring out. Yeah, absolutely. Mark. I mean, I think you hit, you know, every major point there. I, I, and I knew you would definitely have some great thoughts on this. I agree with all that. I, I mean, I think, you know, from a research perspective too, 
there are certain, you know, if you look at the way public health, for example, transformed uh, motor vehicle safety, tobacco mitigation, you know, um, we need right. better things when it comes to public health, like data surveillance, data infrastructure. We just don't have it because we need to be able to inform, you know, what is happening in this country to be able to support certain prevention measures. We need more in the way of research, specifically with respect to community-engaged research and how community programs work. And then number three, to your point, just building on everything you just said, we need a lot more in the way of policy research. You know, policy is going to be a critical component here, whether it be safe storage laws, liability issues, like you said. You know, there is a law, PLACA, that, for example, prevents folks from suing gun manufacturers. Now, you know, that is a major issue, right? If you look at the opiate industry and motor vehicle safety industry and, and how they were held accountable. A lot of that happened through litigation. And I think, you know, there needs to be res- some responsibility on the part of manufacturers to the epidemic that they have caused through marketing practices and, you know, free provision of these lethal means. And so I, you know, we need to engage in that type of research to be able to inform what works and what doesn't, because to your point, there's also a lot that we just don't know. Like we don't know entirely what works and what doesn't. And so unless we get there, we're not going to be able to back policies that are actually evidence-based. And I think that's going to be transformative. Have you read Congressman Dickey's editorial in yes. the Washington Post from yes. 2012? That's exactly what you just said. We don't know the answers. And it's in that space. That's how he decries his own amendment from 1996. We don't know. And it's because of this piece of legislation, two yeah. lines in an omnibus bill in 1996 that, that absolutely took the legs out. And it's it's depressing, but it's also then heartening to know the springboard that, that you have. As people want to follow your work and they, they hear what you have to say and they understand that these interventions are things that also respect the tempo, the tempo and texture of American life, right? These things don't infringe on the Second Amendment. They're in keeping with kind of our best practices of public health, as you said. This is the sort of stuff that hopefully will start to galvanize more and more of the public, even though so much of the public is already supportive of these sorts of things. How do people follow you? How do they find you? How do they follow the work that you're doing with Northwell? How do they follow you when you're doing media hits? Where do people find you? Yeah, you know, I think depends what realm you're in. I think if, if you're a healthcare or clinical team member, I would definitely encourage you to join us at the Learning Collaborative, um, Northwell Health Learning Collaborative for Gunmont's Prevention for hospitals and health systems. If you just Google Northwell Health Gun Violence, it'll take you to our website and there's a link there to join the collaborative. That is very much focused on best practices and implementation. So if you want to, you know, if you yourself want to start something, there's a lot of great network there. We obviously work closely with a lot of the amazing hospitals and universities that are doing wonderful work in this area. And we can kind of connect you with them because a lot of this is about creating that network. Uh, for me personally, you know, this is a collective effort. Listen, we, we have a big team. I work with a lot of other people. Um, Twitter is great. Mark, you know, that's how you and I connected. Um, so just follow me on Twitter at Dr. Chetan Sathya uh, or just reach out anytime. And I think, you know, that that's probably the best way. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well. Chetan, this was amazing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for making time to come on. I know you are pulled in many, many different directions. This was absolutely fantastic, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, Mark, for elevating this topic and for doing the work you're doing. I love the show, and I think uh, it's conversations like these that make people open their eyes. My thanks once again to Chasen for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. There are links in the show notes as discussed. Please do check those out. He is doing great work. His team is doing great work. This is also new work, right? As we talked about, because of things like the Dickey Amendment, we are behind, and we are working hard to catch up. We will need everybody to step into this tension together to work to make the scourge of gun violence in America, especially its impact on American children, better. As we talked about in the intro, please do check out the extraordinary fundraiser, Healthcare Workers Versus Hunger, hashtag HCWVSHunger, and the website HCWVSHunger.org. This competition wraps up on December 4th. Let's see if we can push up to $1 million just this year alone. We're almost halfway there. 
and shout out to all of you who are making this such a wonderful success with your energy and your persistence. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. We will be back soon with more great content as we wrap up 2022. Until that time, take care of yourselves. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.